So now we are going, we're continuing our message series from the letters of John. You might remember that John was Jesus' best friend. He was a disciple who was very close to him. And as he's writing these letters to the church, it's many, many decades after, many years and decades after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And John is now like an elder statesman in the church. He's speaking as someone with wisdom and maturity and guiding the church through the challenges that it was facing. Some of it was from even false teachers who were trying to lead people astray. And one of the things that they would teach sometimes is that since Jesus has saved you, it doesn't really matter what you do. You know, you're saved anyway. Don't worry. You can just kind of do what you want. And John doesn't agree with that. In fact, he challenges us to holiness. Let's hear what John has to say today. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that this is what we are. The reasons the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as he is pure. Amen. That's God's word. And you know, in that word, John lays out two uh, expectations for us. And, and you know, these expectations are, are, are pretty straightforward, really. First of all, that we can expect that Jesus is returning. Jesus is coming back someday, okay? He's very clear about that, that we can expect that Jesus will return. Uh, that was uh, something that Jesus promised us. It was something the early church believed very strongly. It's something the church has continued to believe generation after generation after generation. Now, the tough thing is, we don't know when Jesus will return. We, we know that we don't know that because he said that we wouldn't know that, right? He said that you will not know the day or the hour, right? And sometimes Christians get a little messed up on this. Sometimes we get impatient and we want to know stuff, right? So we try to determine when Jesus will come back. And I've heard throughout my lifetime all sorts of predictions of these kind of things, when, when I was a little kid, it was kind of the end of, of the Cold War, right? I remember hearing preachers talk about how Gorbachev was the Antichrist and all this stuff, right? That seems silly now, but that was common then. And people have been doing that for generations, and they continue to do it, some even today, and they will be in future. It's something that people do when they misunderstand Jesus' words. In fact, at the first church I served, we had a guy there who was, a, he actually had a Bible study for a, for a season there at the church, and he, and so a lot of people respected him as a Bible teacher. And I remember he came up to me one time and he said, John, he said, did you know that Jesus is returning this September? I said, no, I did not. He hadn't informed me of that, actually. And he, and I said, well, why do you think that? Well, that was a mistake, because then he went into a very long explanation of why. And I said, well, but Jesus told us that we wouldn't know. And he said, no, no. Jesus told us we wouldn't know the day or the hour. He did not tell us we wouldn't know the weekend. 
That was the first of three times he would predict the return of Christ in a five-year period of time and ultimately ended up him not being a Bible study leader anymore at our church because that's not, it's contrary to what Jesus says. We know he's coming back, but we're not called to fixate on a date. We're called, well, the second expectation. That's our expectation of God that Jesus is coming. He expects of us that we'll be ready. Okay, that's the expectation for us. We expect he'll come. God expects that we will be ready. We don't fixate on a date. We, we, instead, we strive to be ready, to live ready for Jesus' return. Because we believe him, we take him at his word, and so it's important for us to, to be ready as he expects us to. You know, expectations are important in any relationship. If you want a relationship to work, you have to have aligned expectations, otherwise it's just not going to play out, right? You know, I mean, for example, sometimes we may have expectations that are kind of either uncommunicated or unrealistic or, or just misunderstood here, right? Like, here's an expectation on your left of what it's like to sleep with a pet. Here is on your rea- right a uh, reality of what it's like to sleep with a pet, Right? Because nobody told Rover that you don't put your paw in the person's face. It's just what you do if you're a dog, you know. You, you've got to have expectations that are realistic and that are communicated appropriately. That's how relationships work. You know this if you live with anybody else in, in a home, whether it's a family or a roommate or something like that, right? Do we expect that the laundry will be put in the laundry basket? or strewn across the floor wherever we decided to leave it. Well, you need to know what the other people in your house expect if you're going to have a peaceful, happy life. Expectations are they're important. In, in fact, our expectations drive our behavior. And so in this, in this text, John is making clear what we can expect of God and what God expects out of us. Verse 28, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. When Jesus appears, not if Jesus appears. He's coming so we can be confident and unashamed. Now, remember, John is the respected elder, and he's speaking to the church, and he refers to them as little children little children, beloved children. And he's not looking down on them with this. No, it's a very complimentary term. You see, in, in the Bible, it, co- it commonly uses a metaphor for our relationship with God as like a, a father and his children, right? That God is like this perfect heavenly parent. And he, God is like the, the best parent ever, right? He is the best of everything that a parent could possibly be. And it's, it's really a, it's a beautiful met- metaphor because parents have a relationship with children that is different. It's unlike any other relationship here on this earth. At the, the very best of these relationships, it's, it's amazing what God can do through them. I mean, if you're a parent... I bet you remember the first time you held your child, right? 
We've got a few of these days in my family's history. This was one of them when our, when our middle child Tyson, when he was born, and there is Jacob, our, well, almost 17-year-old uh, today, uh, with him. He was two at the time, right? Those are sacred moments in the life of our family. You know, I, today is a, a wonderful day. I'm glad to be with you, but I can tell you it, it doesn't hold a candle to October 19th, 2004, October 26, 2006, or May 4th, 2009. You just, those are sacred days in my life when each of our children were born and when we got to hold them for the, the very first time. And you know, through those days, I learned a lot about the love of God because in holding each of those children for the first time, I remember being overwhelmed by the fact that I couldn't love this child anymore. Like, I was at 100% love from day one. And that no matter what this child does or does not do in life, I love them 100%. Now, there may be times that I don't like them as well. That happens. There's certainly times they don't like me as well. But you know that love never changes. And if I, as an imperfect earthly parent, feel this kind of love for my kids, imagine how God loves the, the ultimate parent, right? God just uses earthly parental, parental relationships as like the, the microcosm, right? The, the Hot Wheels version of God's big and incredible love for you. It's a way that helps us to understand just how good God's love is. And sometimes folks get tripped up on this. Maybe for you, you, you had a, a parent or both parents who just, not only were they far from perfect, they just, maybe they were terrible to you. And maybe when we talk about God as a parent, it brings some pain. And you say, oh, I... I don't want to think about God in that way. Well, let let me tell you, friends, God is, he's not talking about the flaws of parents. He's talking about the ideal of what a parent should be. And I think it's a mistake to to throw out this metaphor of God as a parent just because there's imperfect parents. Why not instead use the, the perfect heavenly parent to redeem what that metaphor of parenting should be in our lives? What if we looked at that standard that God has and said, yeah, that's what God wants for you and God wants to restore in your life. And if your own parent was far from perfect, your relationship with God can help in a sacred way to bring some healing, to bring some some transformation. Because you know, friends, you are a child of God. When you give your life to Jesus, you are a child of God. You are adopted into his family. And no matter what you accomplish in life, no matter what you do, as great as it may be, there's just no better status that you'll ever have than child of God. He loves you. He cares about you. And, and yeah, the stuff you do in life, it, it matters. I'm not saying that it doesn't. But there's just no better status or title than child of God because your identity dictates your activity, okay? Your identity dictates your activity. That when you know who you are and whose you are, 
it changes the way that you live. They say that, the studies say that, that teens with a, a healthy sense of self-identity are, uh, they, they harm themselves at one-third of the rate of, of teens that don't have a self, healthy self-identity. That when we know who we are, when we have a positive sense of that, life is so much better. We take care of, better, care of ourselves, we treat others better. When, when you see yourself as a child of God, it's amazing what happens as a result of who your daddy is. Your identity dictates your activity. 1 John 2, 28. Now, dear children, continue to live in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Confident and unashamed. It's, it's not always that way for children, right? Maybe you remember back to childhood and you can remember some times that you got caught in the act, right? You got caught with your hand in the cookie jar, right? Or with your scissors trying to give your sibling a little haircut, right? Or the time that you, uh, you know, you went to the donut shop and stole the police car, right? You know, the, <laughs> the things you did, right? I'm sure in childhood, whatever they may be. When you're caught in the act, you don't exactly feel confident nor unashamed. So why would he say something like this? What what is John referencing? Well, here's the thing. With God, God sees everything, right? So when we sin, we are certainly caught in the act. You never get away with it. It's not like God misses it because he was watching somebody else. But when we are caught in the act, our response can be different because, I'll tell you why, Jesus came to take away our sins, it says. That's what Jesus did. So it's not that he just sees our sin and condemns us, right? You remember it says in the book of John that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. So see, there's hope. There's hope when Jesus sees us, when, or when our heavenly Father sees us. It's not a moment of condemnation and shame. No, we can remember that he lived the perfect life, Jesus did. He paid the price for my sins and for your sins. And so we can be forgiven. And not only forgiven, that our sins are are taken away. That Jesus took them on his body when he went to the cross. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become God's righteousness. That's what Jesus did. See, shame is from Satan because he likes to beat you down with shame. Because when you're beaten down with shame, you don't change. You don't grow. You just feel bad about yourself. God is not a God of shame. God's a God of grace. He sees us in our sin and extends grace to us. First, that grace that draws us to himself, that helps us to understand our need for Jesus. Maybe that's the grace that brought you here today. Second, the the grace that justifies us, that makes us right with God, that when we give our lives to Jesus, that in an instant... We are saved, we are transformed, we are changed. 
And finally, that, that grace, that sanctifying grace that helps us to grow more and more like Jesus, more holy as God calls us to be holy. And that's what John's talking about. He tells us that we are to continue in him, that's Jesus, to continue in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, next verse. If you know that he is righteous, that's God, then you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Why? Because their identity dictated their activity. When you know that you're a child of God, you naturally want to live like God is. It, when, when you're a little kid and you have a parent, you want to do things that, that look like the parent, right? If your dad was handy with tools, you probably carried a hammer around, right? Or did something like that, you know, making holes in the wall for dad to fix, you know? Or, or, or maybe, you, you know, you, you saw things that, that mom did and you, you replicated those. And when people see you, they know, they say, yeah. I know who your parents are, right? I can see that coming through you in, in so many great ways. That's what we want to do as children of God. That's what righteousness is. It really is looking more like our daddy, imitating him, trying to be who he is, trying to be like he is. Verse 2, dear friends, we are children of God, and that's what and that, and excuse me, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope purify themselves just as he is pure. Isn't that interesting? When what we will be has not yet been made known. Now that's kind of how life is like when you're growing up. What you will be is not yet known. I mean, if I walked up, let, let's imagine if, uh, if your seventh grade teacher were still living, right? And your seventh grade teacher saw you today and you talked for a little bit and they said, you know, you have not changed a bit since seventh grade would not be a high compliment, now would it? And no offense to our seventh graders, right? But, you know, we've all got some growing and maturing to do at that age. And it's a continual process through life of growing and maturing. We will, we, what we are is not what we will yet be. That's the reality for us. The spiritual life is an ongoing process of growth. You don't just arrive in one day. You don't just make a decision to follow Jesus and then boom, I'm exactly where I need to be. No more need for studying the Bible or life groups or bands or anything, I'm good. No, it's a process of growth. It's part of what the church exists for, to introduce people to Jesus and to help us to grow in our faith in Jesus. We need each other. We need our, our groups, we need our Bible studies, we need our bands, we need these things because they help draw us closer and closer to Jesus. We aren't yet there yet. However, we are expected, like it says in verse 4, to be ready when Jesus returns. This is God's expectation of us. We can expect that he's coming back. We're expected to be ready. And we do so by purifying ourselves, like it says, just as he is pure. Pure. 
When we purify ourselves, we look more like Jesus. In, in biological families, we call this a, a familial re- resemblance, right? If your parents are tall, you're probably tall, right? You know, maybe you inherited some things from your, your parents, right? Like maybe you in, in inherited your, your dad's athletic ability and your mom's great smile, or, or maybe reversed, your mom's athletic ability and your dad's great smile. And, and you know, when people see you, they, they recognize these things in you. As you get older, you might also realize you might have inherited some things you wish you didn't, right? Like you inherit your dad's back pain and your mom's incontinence and, you know, it's, a, it's unfortunate, right? But it's part of life. It's part of life. We resemble our parents. So when you have a perfect parent, God, it sets an awesome opportunity to grow in, who God, in that holiness that God calls us to do. It's not a physical resemblance. It's a moral, it's a spiritual resemblance. As we grow in holiness, we grow to look more like our daddy. That's exactly what we're doing here. God's holiness, it looks great on us as we grow in it because it's really, it's who we were called to be from the beginning. Verse four, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Now, verse 6 is a tough one. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. I'd say, oh, time out. What are we talking about here? Well, first, Jesus didn't come only to forgive you of your sins. He came to free you, to free you from sin. He doesn't want us to live in sin. He wants us to be free so that we can be the people God calls us to be. Verse 6 is a high standard. It's literally one of the most morally challenging verses in the whole Bible. And on first read of the verse, it would be easy to misunderstand it if we don't hold it in tension with other verses in the Bible. It's always important to read the whole thing together, not just isolate one specific verse. And, and I could spend a long time on this, but just to summarize, we, we know that, that a few things about this. First, when it's talking about sin... That is an, an intentional violation of God's law, okay? Sin is not like a, an accident, right? I was pulling out a parking space. I didn't see somebody behind me, and I backed into him. Okay, bummer, you're liable. It's going to cost you, not sin, right? If you see someone walking behind you who you don't like, well, that could be a different issue, right? Right? <laughs> That would be a line there between sin, not sin, okay? Intentional acts that violate God's laws. That's what we're talking about with sin. Um, We're not talking about errors. Second, it it doesn't mean that, uh, that we will never cause hurt for anyone else. We can sometimes unintentionally cause hurt by a whole lot of things that may not even be sin. Okay? So it doesn't mean that no one will ever be hurt because they interacted with us. We, we don't want to hurt others. We strive not to hurt others. And if we do things that are violation of God's law and it hurts others, that's definitely a sin. But it doesn't mean that no one will ever be unintentionally hurt by us. 
And third, it doesn't mean that we lose our salvation every time we sin. If that were the case, we would be saved by our works. And the Bible's really clear, that's not the case. It is by grace you're saved, through faith, not of yourself, right? It's a gift of God, not of works, the Bible says. Okay, so the Bible's really clear on that. So why would a Christian sin less and less? Ultimately, why would a Christian stop sinning? Well, because we know who our Father is. And the more in love we are with our Father, the more time that we spend with our Father, the more we look like our Father and less we look like, well, says the devil, right? Verse 7, dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he God is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. You see, righteousness or holiness, it's like our paternity test, you know? It's what proves that we are children of God. Not that we work to earn our salvation. No, it shows that we've got a relationship with dad. That the more that I live according to God's will, the more it demonstrates that I've got a real relationship with God. The point of John's teaching here is that we need to have the right center of gravity in our lives, the right Lord of our lives, that that our default becomes more and more towards the things of God and less and less towards the things of Satan. That's, that's spiritual growth. I mean, if you, don't, if you don't have a desire to stop sinning, do you really have faith in Jesus? Because when we do, it gives us a desire to be more like him. And when we mess up, I mess up, I sin, so do you. It leads us to confess our sins knowing that he's faithful and just to forgive us, and it leads us to draw closer to him so that we can experience change and growth in holiness. I want that so badly for me and for you. And I want for our lives together here to be an example of how great God is, that when God sees us as Anderson Hills God doesn't, or when, sorry, when people see us as Anderson Hills, they don't say, oh, you know, they must have a great staff, or they must have a great music, or they must have, a, yes, all true, I'm biased, I love our staff team, I love our music, but they say, those people must really love Jesus. That's the one thing we know about them more than anything else in the world, because we look at the way that they live. So I want to pray for you today, and I want to do something a little different, because I know with this kind of message, it could be easy to feel some condemnation or shame, saying, my life is not there, and I don't know how it's going to be. And I just want to pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would experience healing and wholeness that would help you to grow in holiness. And so we'll do a couple things. One, after the service, maybe you might want to come forward and pray. We'll have members of our prayer team here. They'll pray for you or for your family or for whoever it is you want to pray for, your children, your neighbors, whoever. They want to pray with you. 
but, but also now as I pray, I'm just gonna walk down the aisle because I just want, I want you to know how much I love you, how much I'm on this journey with you, and that I believe that God is changing us together as he draws us closer and closer to himself. So God, we need you. Every hour we need you. And, and Lord, as we hear your word, I pray that you would draw us closer to yourself. Daddy, we wanna look like you. We wanna walk like you walk. We wanna live in holiness as you call us to live. And we confess that we struggle sometimes. We sin, we mess up. All of us, we get it wrong. And we need your grace, we need your forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us, your children. That you would help us to grow in grace, grow in love with you, that you would change us, God, that you would help us to be more and more and more like you, that each and every day, God, that we would live in holiness, that we would live according to your call, to your standards, to your truth, because it's only by your power that that's gonna happen. And I pray that you would fill us with your power, that you would fill us with a love for you, for your truth, for your calling that changes our lives. God, we need you. We give ourselves to you this day. We love you, God, and pray this all in Jesus' holy name, amen. <laughs>